This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leslie. Well, good morning again. Glad to be with you this morning on this second week of Advent as we continue our series, uh, Christmas Through the Eyes, Through the Eyes of Isaiah. Remember, we talked last week, why this book? Why this book at Christmas time? Well, uh, Advent is the time of waiting uh, expectantly, the time of waiting expectantly for Christ, the deliverance that he brings, the saving that accompanies his, his birth, his death, his resurrection. And Isaiah's book was written to uh, a people uh, that were expecting. And it's written with this great expectation of a Savior. And Isaiah prophesies as well as we ask and answer, why this book at this time of year? He prophesies very specific truths, too, concerning this Savior. And he writes to a people, God's people, the Jews who were going to need a saving very soon as they would be taken captive. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Isaiah wrote about the coming judgment, the coming destruction that would come upon the kingdom of Judah, and that God would deliver them after that. Remember Isaiah is a prophecy a hundred and some years before that God would deliver them and bring them back from that Babylonian captivity, it's called. We also talked about this last week. I think we got a picture coming up. We're working on it? Okay. Well, I'll describe it. When it comes up, you'll go, wow. <laughs> we talked about this last week. If you remember, it was a picture of some with the hills. There's the first one. Are we, are we there? We're working on it. We'll wait. There's a picture. There's some hills in the front. And you see them in the foreground. In the background, there's these mountains, kind of a, a second horizon. You might, hey, there it is. A second horizon. Wow, thank you. <laughs> a second horizon there. We talked how biblical prophecy functions somewhat like this picture. In this picture, like we said, you have a few different horizons. We see the lush green hills in the foreground with stunning detail and clarity. See it really clear. And then the back, we see a different horizon back there. We know it's there. You can see it, but not quite as clear, but, but it's out there. You see it, and even a third in that picture. Well, the fulfillment of prophecy works much like this in the Bible. Many times it's fulfilled in stages, over history, on different horizons. And so last week, we talked about the fact that on one horizon, after, after chapter 40 last week that we were in, and the following chapters... God's people were saved. They were brought back. They were gathered in. And Isaiah prophesied their return through this Persian king by name, way before he was even born, named Cyrus, in chapter 45. And so it was partially fulfilled in those days, in the days of the Jewish people. Some of these prophecies, they were saved and brought out of ex exile. But on another horizon now, the second hills there, you might say, the point, the farther out hills, there's a future fulfillment. And Isaiah is still speaking now in chapter 49 of salvation that will come to all the earth. Another horizon, something in the future. Well, there was a second problem for God's people. Yes, God saved them from their physical captivity. He brought them back home. But what about their spiritual captivity to sin? 
almost a greater problem, you might say. A greater problem than even their Babylonian captivity. Their need to be saved from God, by God. We look again today at that far out horizon that points us in our passage to Advent and a servant. A servant now who pops up in Isaiah's book. He's mentioned the first time in chapter 42, and the second time now, in our, we're at the second of four songs of the servant that Isaiah writes. We're looking at the second of four today. And we enter in today into what you might call a cosmic conversation. A cosmic conversation between God the Father and this servant. It's a conversation. It's a dialogue between them. A dialogue. And we get to enter into it. We get to go into this conversation and look and hear and see. And we're going to see that the servant's mission pointed Isaiah's contemporaries, people alive at his time, to a future deliverance, a further horizon out there, greater even than their Babylonian captivity, the problem of separation from God. And that's what we're going to hear today. And that's where we're going to find hope today. We're going to look at three chords of this song today that point us to Advent. And my hope, my prayer is that we will be wrapped again up into this song of Isaiah and the song of Christmas as we marvel at this servant's birth. The prophecy, this song, it is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So let's see it today. Let's hear it today in this song. So grab your outline. Hopefully you have your Bibles open uh, to Isaiah, to chapter 49. Let's look at our first chord of the song where we'll hear, where we'll see that the servant's mission is unveiled. His mission is unveiled in the beginning of this beautiful song that Isaiah writes. You can imagine God's people getting to the end and reading at the end of chapter 48 and saying, okay, well, God redeemed us, God saved us, God brought us back by the hand of this man Cyrus, or he will if they're looking at it future still. He's brought us back and saved us, but we are a rebellious, idolatrous people that have also sinned against God. And so the servant begins to speak there, how will he save us in this way? servant begins to speak here as he's unveiled in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at three things about him. Here's the first one. The servant speaks for himself. It's the first sub-point there. The servant speaks for himself. Look at verse 1 with me. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, catch this, but if you notice, last week's passage, chapter 40, began kind of similar. Listen up, it said. Listen. Pay attention. Listen to my words. Speak to my people, chapter 40 said last time. But now that Isaiah has dealt with the return of the Babylonian captivity, the audience has grown. So he doesn't just say, speak to my peoples, but he says, oh, the coastland. And people far away, people everywhere, he says. The audience has grown now that they've been brought back from captivity. to speak to all nations everywhere. Listen up. But this speaker also is different in that he has his own voice. He says, listen to me. Give attention to 
me. And some people have tried to explain as, as we look at this song and this servant that it's either Isaiah, this servant here, or the nation of Israel. I'm going to make the case this morning that it's actually neither. Neither. Well, it can't be Isaiah. Here's why. No prophet would ever speak as boldly as this servant speaking here in such a personal way. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. No, they would say, thus says the Lord. Listen to the Lord. But this servant has this bold proclamation here. No, listen to me. Pay attention to me. Isaiah wouldn't speak that way. He'd be too humble. What's happening here is, is also a demand for an audience. This speaker's demanding an audience in a way that Isaiah wouldn't be so brash to demand either. He's demanding an audience, and this servant is demanding not just God's people, uh, the Jews at the time, he's, desi- he's demanding a hearing with the world, with the entire world. And isn't it just like a humble servant, Jesus, to demand an audience with the world and then be born a human baby who can't speak? Think of the irony there. The irony there. And not only that, he must learn to talk as a real human. So he demands this worldwide audience, and then he becomes a baby who can't speak and has to learn to talk. Think of the humility there. But make no mistake, he would grow. He would, he would, he would age. He would learn to talk and speak. And on that mountain, hundreds of years later, God the Father would say of his servant here in the Gospel of Mark, At the transfiguration, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Hear his voice. Listen to him. As the servant in this song said, listen to me. This servant has a distinctly authoritative voice in this passage, chapter 49. With with a permission to speak and a mission to speak for God, we're going to see And so the question that we start with is, as you sit here today and you begin to listen to this voice we're going to talk about, does Jesus have an authoritative voice in your life? Do you run everything through the grid of his voice or or the grid of his word, you might say? Does he have that place in your life? You know, we live, we do, we live with this delusion, all of us do that we are much more autonomous than we really actually are. We live with that delusion. As if our voice, our will was the primary thing that always drove and drives our life. It's a cry of our era. Uh, Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Well, what 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 if you do and your heart's deceptive? What do you do? You follow your heart and it's deceptive. We need another voice. We're not just autonomous. We need another voice to come in to our life. He has a unique voice. Well, here's a second revelation of the servant, the servant's preparation we see in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at it. The servant's preparation in verses 1 through 3. The first one was he speaks for himself. The second one is his preparation. Verse 2, he's been prepared for this, this servant. Whoever this is, as Isaiah's readers would have thought, who is this servant? He's, he's getting ready for whatever he's got ahead of him. He's being prepared for this. 
There's a confidence in this servant. I've been called from the womb, he says. There's a certainty. I know my mission. I've got no doubt about it. And really, this servant's been waiting for this and has been prepared for this from all time. Peter takes us there. He says, you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, way back in time, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Talk about a preparation (laughs) before the foundation of the world. This one who ransomed us is getting ready. And as the Christmas story reveals in verse 1 says, God will name him. God will prepare him. God will name him. The angel Gabriel, as we know, what? Appears to that young mother, that young scared virgin. And he says, you'll call his name. I'll name him Jesus. Not only that, he appears to the dad, Joseph, and says, you'll call his name Jesus. Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus is the servant who will come and will save us by his blood. Like I said, we're going back into a cosmic conversation today, back into the depths before time, really, before the foundation of the world. God has been preparing me, this servant saying, to be revealed at the right time, like a sharp sword, he says in these verses like a polished arrow to be shot, he says. But his sword, as we know, we look at the life of Jesus, it's not one of violence, is it? It's not a kingdom of violence. It's not a kingdom of military defeat. His sword would be one that's sharper than any double-edged sword. What's that? His word. The word of his mouth, his words. The gospel of God, the good news that would, that would pierce hearts. Not limbs, <laughs> but hearts. Pierce hearts that would draw sinners in to himself. That's the sword that was getting ready. That's the sword that was sharpened. And he would fly straight like a smooth arrow. Well, he speaks for himself. He's prepared before time. How about his name? Let's look at the servant's name. It's the third thing in these first few verses. Uh, I'm going to read verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, strange, in whom I will be glorified. Here's his name. How could it be Jesus if right here he says, my servant, Israel? What's going on? This is the verse that causes in this passage the most kind of discussion. Wait a minute. This servant, he calls him Israel? Well, I'm going to make the case. I don't think it actually can be the nation of Israel here because of what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says the servant will save Israel. So how can Israel save itself, I would say? Israel can't be the agent to save Israel. And so something else must be going on here. So if the servant isn't Isaiah, and I don't think it's the nation of Israel, as verse 5 and 6 make clear, this is something different. He's distinct from either of those, this servant. He's distinct. 
And so he must be maybe then one who embodies everything Israel was called to be. We're going to put on our thinking caps a little bit this morning. And embodies everything that Israel was called to be. What was Israel's ultimate purpose? God's people now. As they were gathered, as they were called out, as they were given a mission, God's people. The covenant given to Abraham, take a look at it, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, given to Abraham. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to bring a blessing to all the nations. And Abraham's covenant and responsibility was passed to Jacob, who becomes Israel and is even given that name, out of which comes the nation of Israel. But when we finish this passage, we'll see that either God must have had to say, well, I failed with that nation, or bring forward the true and worthy Israel. The true and worthy Israel, Jesus to bless the earth. Matthew of any gospel makes it the most clear that in many ways, in many ways, Jesus embodies the true Israel. Absolutely, Matthew makes it clear. And he fulfills actually what they could never be even. Take a look. Matthew 2, 14 14 and 15. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. There was another group of people in Egypt one time, wasn't there? And and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus comes out of Egypt, as Matthew writes, to fulfill. And he comes out like the embodiment of Israel out of Egypt. What happens next? He's baptized. Like Israel goes through the sea, Jesus too is plunged under the waters. What happens next? He goes out into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days as Israel wandered in the desert for 40 days. What happens after that? It goes on and on and on. You don't need a temple. Now I'm the presence of God. It goes on and on and on. Filling up, filling up what Israel could never be, this servant becomes uh, he's filling up the, the, the redemptive historical purpose that Israel always had there that they never could quite be. Jesus comes and fulfills it, all of it. When we go on to our second, third chord, we'll see this servant will do things that the nation of Israel could never do. He will truly glorify God, verse 3 says. So let's look at our second chord. The servant looks to God as God now looks to save the world. The servant looks to God as God looks to save the world. We're getting into verses 4, I think it says in your outline and on. You know, any one of us who's ever labored in life for good things or for the goodness of another person and wanted to see that person come to know what's true in life, what's good in life, what's beautiful in life, anyone who's ever labored, maybe it's with kids or grandkids or a friend, you've labored to see somebody as a friend, as a parent, as a pastor, as a missionary, anybody who's ever done any kind of work like that has at some point said, am I really making any difference in this person's life? Haven't you felt that? Did my words, are they, I mean, anything getting through? Am I really making a difference in this world or in this family or in this place of employment? 
Does my life matter? We've all had that, those thoughts and those frustrations. And when those thoughts come on as we begin to think them, and if we dwell on them too long, we fall into a despondency, sort of a disconnect, and sometimes a discouragement. I should be seeing more victory. I should get more credit. This is, this is a failure. And we can easily become discouraged when that happens, can't we? We can easily become discouraged. Am I making a difference at all? Well, we have ideas, don't we, of what our life should look like and what should be the results of something when we try something. We've got those ideas, don't we? And then they don't go our way and we either beat ourselves up or we blame God. And surprisingly, Isaiah records, the servant is discouraged too. Let's look at the antidote to discouragement. The servant is discouraged too. Uh, Verse 4 says, but I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. The servant's speaking there. He laments. The fact that he's spent everything, he's labored everything and he's used up all his strength and it all seems to be in vain. Can you relate sometimes? Just feel exhausted. It's just not going the way I was hoping. And as we know through our series in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus has in his humanity experienced intense times of frustration, hasn't he? And, And discouragement and exhaustion. After a long day with arguing with the Pharisees, what must he have felt like? Or when he asked his disciples, do you want to leave me too like the crowds? Or, or, or when we've seen also a couple times in Mark when he's just sighed this groan of just, uh, of real human frustration. And if you look at Advent, you look at the Christmas story, the life of Jesus, is there ever a story that looks on the surface to be a big waste of time and, and vain in and of itself? A baby born in a manger, not a great place. A royalty in a manger? An unknown from a family that had no fame, no power. A ministry that does seem to grow for a little bit with some crowds, but then what happens? He ends up on the cross. How many disciples are there? One. That's all he could manage to muster up at the end. One out of the 12 and a few of the women who watch while he dies. I mean, it looks in vain. But as we sung this morning, the Advent Advent has a future horizon as well, doesn't it? He's coming again because he rose from the grave. The advent has a future horizon too. He didn't stay dead. But on the surface, it looks like this verse. Futile. But what does the servant do? What's the antidote for discouragement? What did Jesus do? What's the servant do? It's the antidote to your discouragement and my discouragement too. Here it is. He looks to God. Verse 4 continues. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. He continues, he says, yet, I'm discouraged, but I'm discouraged, yet, everything looks like it's falling apart, but he looks to God. I know who God is, he says. My God, he says, he decides my due. He decides my reward. He will be the one who works. And he goes on in verse 5 to remind himself again that he formed me with a mission. I know that. I know who I am, even in the discouragement to save Jacob, to save Israel, to take this message to the ends of the earth. And I'm honored, and God is my strength, he says. 
He's discouraged and he looks to God. I love how this commentator, uh, Mortier's name, spoke on this passage. He said, the antidote to despondency or discouragement, just says, the antidote to discouragement is first the wisdom of God. To the servant here, all seems waste of effort, but he turns from his own wisdom and rests in the God who called and appointed him. That's first. Secondly, it's the power of God. He himself sees nothing coming out of all his effort, but it's not for him to decide. As the called servant, he's been faithful and laboring and spending himself. Now it's for the Lord to bring what fruit he will out of it all. Resting faith is the answer to despondency. And that's our antidote too. To the depths of your discouragement, to the isolation you feel, to the loneliness, to when it all looks like it's falling apart and it's vain, you say, I know who my God is. He's the one who decides how this will work. He's the one who will bring fruit. He's the one who will reward. And you're lifted through that. If Jesus the servant had to do that, how much more do you and I need to do that? Look to God. That's our antidote too when you're despondent or downcast. And this is Advent season. That is, this is what Advent is. Look to what you know to be true about God and rest in it. Rest in it. In faith. That's the answer. Look to God. It's not for you. So many times we like to, pr- to pronounce the value on something. Well, that worked. Well, that was a big failure. You know, well, it was okay. It was all right. We, we love to do that. We decide the value of our efforts, the success of them. That's not our job. That's not your job. Your my job is to live in faithful obedience and let God do a work and let God decide how things will pan out. Let God be God is really what he's saying. Well, as the servant works out his discouragement by looking to God, the scope of the mission grows here. Let's look at the scope of the mission. The servant looks to God. God's looking at bigger, bigger, bigger things. It's as if God says, servant, you will be the one who shows my glory to the world. But the mission to just save Jacob and Israel, it's too small. It's too small. Verse 6 says, it's too light a thing. It's too small of a thing. Uh, Verse 6, second half says, I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Bigger. Bigger. Bigger isn't always better, is it? It's not always better, right? When it comes to lots of things, bigger is not always better. Bigger gulp, not better. (laughs) Not better for you. Bigger debt, definitely not. You know, a bigger steak isn't even always better, is it? Some of the best steaks are the little tiny filet mignon, right? Bigger is not always better. Bigger government, We'll leave it there. Bigger bank. <laughs> bigger property. Sometimes what, more headache, the larger the property sometimes even. Some of you know that. But a bigger mission to save is always better. Always better. A bigger mission to save is always better. He himself will be a light to the world. It's just too light of a thing, Jacob and Israel. To the world. To the nations. He himself will be this light to the world. And verse 7 says, all the kings will see it and all the kings will bow. 
The servant is a light to the Gentiles, all the ends of the earth. And the New Testament proclaims this for us and affirms it. Luke 2.32 in the Christmas story, Simeon, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. It's the same language. And for the glory to your people, Israel, both end. A Savior to the Jews, a Savior to the Gentiles, a Savior for the world. And Jesus said it himself, I, me, I, there's that language, listen to me, I himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that is our third chord from the song of the servant. It's what the rest of the passage is about, this expanding out of this light and his mission and his message. And here's what it is. The advent of the servant begins a new exodus, a new exodus to gather a worldwide people to worldwide joy and worship. It's our final one. The new, this advent, this is what Christmas is all about. This is who we are about, Bethany Church. Uh, This new exodus that you and I get to be part of, that you've been wrapped into if you've trusted Christ. You're part of this new worldwide mission to gather in a people, a worldwide people now, for worldwide joy and worship. I I want this final section today, I hope, I pray, that we would realize how blessed we are to live on this side of Christmas. Do we realize that? I mean, Isaiah's contemporaries would have read it and would have got things and would have been hoping for a servant, would have realized they needed something outside of themselves in their failure. But man, we get to look at it post-cross, post-resurrection. We see things clearer than any of Isaiah's readers could have. They had to have faith in the promises as revealed up to that point in their lives. And we as a family, Bethany, you as an individual, we have the fullness We have it. We have it all filled up. We have the fullness of the story, the picture of God's timing and plan we're going to look at. God's timing and plan. Look at verse 8 with me after you fill that one in. God's timing and plan. Thus says the Lord, verse 8, In a time of favor I've answered you. In a day of salvation I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Father speaking to the servant here, to Jesus here, and of course he does in the, in the foreground, doesn't he? He brings them back to the land, doesn't he? He reestablishes them in the land. He brings them back. But as the father speaking to the servant here, to Jesus here, I believe, his task is to be in and of himself now, in and of himself the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant for God's people. A covenant is like a mutual agreement between two parties with promises attached, with a common goal at the end. That's what a covenant is. And now we see here in Isaiah that this servant is to be the covenant in and of himself. He'll fulfill God's part, and he will fulfill Israel's part too, his people's part. He'll be both. And in himself, in and of himself, he is the covenant. And so what that means then is a personal relationship with this servant who fulfills the covenant in and of himself, a personal relationship is what brings along the blessings of that covenant to you, the blessings of a life of knowing Jesus, the blessings that follow in this passage available. 
the timing and plan in a day of God's choosing. In a day of God's choosing. Paul quotes this verse from Isaiah, and he says, today's the day. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians. For he says, he's quoting this, our passage, in a favorable time I've listened to you. In a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, Paul says in his day, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul takes it and claims it. We live in the age of God's grace. You live in that time. When the full story's known, it's all been revealed. The day has come. The time has come. The servant's been revealed. You can know that. As the good news of Christmas rings out from here, we know that God is still saving people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he still is. Today's the day of salvation. So if you hear his voice, what does the scripture say? Don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation, available to all nations. Well, God's people's history, it was pictured physically by their restoration from exile in Babylon. Physically pictured. They were gathered back together, God's people. It was a restoration back to the promised land. And you see it in the languages of of verses 9 through 11. We're not going to read them. But a calling out of prisoners, a making a road back to the land. He'll guide, he'll feed, he'll remove the obstacles of mountains. He will make a way. But very clearly, there's a future horizon. Look at verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and and from the west and these from the land of of Cyrene. It's kind of curious. There's no mention of the east there. It's weird. North, west, Cyrene. It's possible. I'm not going on the record for sure here. But it's possible that there's no mention of the east because Isaiah didn't want his people to confuse their gathering back from Babylon, which was in the east, with this final gathering, this bigger gathering. It's possibly left east out. These are people gathered from everywhere now. This is a worldwide exodus, a worldwide gathering that the servant begins in a tiny little manger. There's that irony again of a vain-looking mission. It begins it like a little baby here. Like a little baby, or little kids, little babies we see having the service today. He begins it like that. Little baby. A worldwide mission. People from all groups, all places, all nations, all languages, the servant will bring home. It's the exile of sin and death that Jesus, the servant, defeats. And it's this homecoming to which the prophet is referring, and it should lead us to worship. God's restoring exiles warrants our worship. It warrants our worship, our praise, our life, our devotion, our commitment, our faith. Verse 13, it's almost like he can't help himself. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Who feels afflicted today? Some of us do. Who needs the gentle dose of uh, compassion from their God? We all do. 
It's an outburst of praise from the prophet is what happens here. We see it in Paul's letters a lot. He's just speaking of glorious truths and he just bursts out from a mountaintop. Praise God. That's what's happening here in verse 13. It's the heart response of those who trusted Christ. Know they're secure. Know they have compassion with God when they're saved from God. But maybe this song is hitting on deaf ears this morning for you. Can you ask God this morning to show you the true song of Christmas? You can, and he will, to find that hope and peace we've been singing and talking about. Or maybe you call yourself a follower of Christ, and, you know, this, the verse 13, the sentiment of it doesn't just make you want to jump on a mountaintop today and sing out loud the gospel message. Yeah, that might be a lot of us today. You hear this and the sentiment, you're like, oh, I get it. Okay, Isaiah's writing in this big flowery language, but I don't feel like getting up and singing today on the top of a mountain. Maybe it's falling flat on you. Well, even as followers of Christ, we have bought into so many of our Western songs. And I'm thinking metaphorically here, not just music. It can be music, but messages that maybe this one just falls flat for you today. Every great movie has a soundtrack, uh, 99% of them written by John Williams, if you know his name, <laughs> most of them. And, you know, our lives are full of so many songs, metaphorically now, songs. We play to ourselves. We, we, we sing to ourselves. And so ask yourself, what's the soundtrack of your life? Every movie's got a great soundtrack. Our life does too. What, what's the message playing over and over for you? We buy many into so many of our culture's greatest hits. Which one's making it feel flat today for you? Here's some of our culture's greatest hits. Some song titles for you. Hey, you deserve it. Don't let them talk to you that way. Why give of yourself? She's done nothing for you. You need more. More, more, money, money, get more stuff. That's a big Christmas one. If you don't have fame, you're a nobody. If you don't have great sex, life is meaningless. Some of our culture's greatest hits. Oh, here's another one. You're perfect just as you are. Follow your heart. Just be you. That's all that matters. Eh, here's another one. My truth, your truth. You do what's right for you. All greatest hits in our culture. Greatest hits. Top 40. Top 40, all those. And I want to be clear this morning. I think Isaiah is, and I think the servant knows this. You'll be shaped by the voice and the song, the message you hear the most. It's inevitable. You will be shaped by the, the message, the voice you hear most. You know why? We love habits. And we're actually formed by habits. Our habits form our hearts. Our habits form our loves. And so whatever message is the habitual message that is, you're feeding yourself or from somewhere else, you're going to be formed by that. You're going to be shaped by that in ways you don't even realize. That's what marketing is, isn't it? This week I was listening to one of my favorite musician's brand, a brand new album that he came out with. Um, 
And by no means a Christian artist. Let me be clear up front. You'll, you'll know for sure when you hear one of his lyrics. In fact, totally secular. Um, but he'd never gone so far in one of his songs to sing, I don't believe in heaven. I love this artist. I've been listening to him for a couple decades. And as I got this new album, of course, I played it a few times. And I found myself listening to this, this one particular song probably the third time, you know, and I kind of heard what it had said. And it came to that line in the song, and without even thinking, I started to sing the line. And I caught myself. What am I doing? What am I saying? What am I singing? How's this shaping me? And it was kind of weird. The next couple of days, I couldn't get that line out of my head. It had been attached to music, which attaches to our hearts, a real song now. I couldn't get that line out of my head. I believe in heaven. I better write or I lose my job today. (laughs) You and I are shaped by the dominant messages we hear. And we really need that one song, the song, this song. Ever put your music on repeat? One song? We need it on repeat, don't we? you got to hear it. The song of salvation. We've got to hear it and hear it and hear it. And Christmas is the greatest time to hear it on volume 11. Let me get that reference. All the way turned up. As loud as it can go. The song of salvation. And if that's the song shaping your heart, here's what it does to you. You will become a servant too. This is Advent. Here's our last thing today. The servant has saved. Now the saved become the serving. That's what Christmas is about. That's what Advent's about. God led us into this cosmic conversation, this song of the servant, this Christmas, so that we too might joyfully break out. And I pray it's fresh for you again today with lives of worship and service, hearts blazing to take this song to the end of the earth, the song of a baby born in a manger. Let's pray. Lord, I know even as I came to the passage this week that this beautiful song of Christmas and the servant, it can fall on our deaf ears. It can fall on ears that don't feel like that verse 13, to jump on a mountaintop and sing it out loud, Lord. And yet, God, it's the song every one of us, each and every one of us need on repeat. Lord, today, make it fresh. Let it battle through the discouragement we're feeling that even the servant field, let it lift us high to mountaintops because we know we are secure and saved by this servant. And he's come once and he's coming again. And that's all the proof we need. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Jeff. Will you uh, stand with me as we just respond in praise of our Savior?